Well, hello. It's wonderful to be here. My name's Kerry Carrington, and thank you, Julia, for that very generous introduction. I'm going to be talking to you today about women and violence, women who are the victims of violence, and women who are also violent offenders and who end up in jail. That might seem strange to a lot of people, but it's not strange because sometimes, and quite often, they can be the same women, because over a half of women in jail have been victims of trauma, sexual abuse and domestic violence, and probably um, the most victimised of victims we have. And some of them even end up in jail when they go to get help as a victim of domestic violence. That might seem very odd to you, but I'm going to explain how. Okay. The first thing that's important to get your head around, and this is why I have a few slides on, on, on uh, statistics, is that the extent of lethal domestic violence in Australia is absolutely ginormous. It's almost half of our homicide rate. It's 41%, and that's an average over 10 years. Half, nearly almost half of our homicides are due to family and domestic violence. Of those, a quarter are due to... Um, a quarter are due to partner killings. Um, and in most cases of lethal violence, nearly all cases, they are women and children who are the victims, and nearly all cases, it is men who are the perpetrators. It does not mean that men cannot be victims of domestic violence. In fact, one in 20 are, but there's a lot of diversity in these victims, and the men who do tend to show up as victims of domestic violence may come from same-sex um, relationships or even transgendered communities and because of the police form, their sex is recorded as, as male even though they wouldn't necessarily identify as male. So it's a hugely complex area, um, but in, in the main I'm going to be talking about women as victims and men as perpetrators, even though I do realise that, that there's quite a lot of diversity. Now, this is another important fact to understand. A half are killed in that six-month period where they're either planning to leave and trying to leave or they have left. So this domestic violence actually fits a pattern. And this has to change. And what is even more remarkable is that we know about these patterns. Three-quarters of women know their killers. They know their attackers and most of them would know in advance it is preventable, and yet we are pretty hopeless at preventing it. Those homicide rates have not shifted for almost two decades, and our sexual assault rates are going up. Now, last year, 400,000 Australians experienced assault. Uh, only half of these reported to police. That's not unusual. Uh, now, 73% of the offenders were male and 19% female. Uh, but again, three quarters of the female victims knew their attackers and nearly all of them was their partner or ex-partner. So you see this, it's a very predictable pattern. Every sort of bunch of statistics you can, you can look at in, in our crime databases for the last three or four decades in Australia tells you this pattern. We know so much about this pattern and yet we still cannot stop it. Um, now, the other pattern is multiple assaults. Many women who are victims um, undergo multiple assaults. But what's, what, what is 
common and commonly said is that domestic violence is something that's not just confined to any one part of the society. So therefore, women from upper class and um, elite backgrounds can, be, can also be subject to domestic violence. What is very different, though, is that women who do not have the resources to leave a, an abusive, violent relationship, on average, put up with the violence, guess what? over 30 times before they do anything about it. Women who have resources and financial means and independence to escape a violent relationship put up with it on average three times. So who do you think has the greatest risk of being um, the, the, the subject of lethal violence? Of course, it's, so it's marginalised women, it's Indigenous women, it's women who are poor, women who have other issues. And that has to change. So what can we do, do to make women safer? What can be done? Um, obviously it should be a national priority and a lot was done last year to make it a national priority. The federal government committed $100 million, Rosie Batty certainly spent a whole year raising consciousness about it. Uh, in Queensland we had the Not Now, Not Never report and there's been a whole lot of recommendations and a framework put in place. But, um, and it costs, the other reason why we really need to do something about it is there's also an economic cost. Now, that was a study done by Access Economics in 2003, estimated the cost at $8 billion. I think if you realistically looked at it, Queensland estimated it last year into its economy, it was $3 billion last year alone. So the cost is enormous and the opportunity costs are enormous. Uh, now, as I said before, because it's domestic violence fits a pattern, we can change it. We know how to change it. We are just absolutely hopeless at really intervening to do so. And I'll get to, to that why. Um, and it's partly because nearly all of our intervention measures, nearly all of them are post-assault. That is, after the fact, not before the fact. And they're important. They're very important to reduce the trauma. They're very important to help the victims escape. It's very important. And a lot of them are about making perpetrators accountable. But we kind of seem to have, I think, the balance wrong. Far too much emphasis on that and far too little emphasis on what's called, what we call preventative um, responses, and I think this really needs to change. And the preventative responses are really about driving change, about, about, the, about the cultural drivers of change, and the best and key elements to a, a prevention package include education, they include partnerships, and I'm going to come back to this later, but they also very much include men and men as change agents, and I'll come back to that at the end. Now, last year we had 60,000 Australians experience sexual assault. Nearly all the victims were 18 to 25. Only one in four would report to police, and I'd say that's a fairly conservative estimate. It's more like one in eight. Um, and less than 5% will ever proceed to a charge of the offender, and 1% will lead to a, victim's, a, a conviction. So, really, there is just no justice in the justice system for the victims of sexual assault. Give up. Almost give up. You're not going to make those perpetrators accountable. It's not a deterrent. It's not going to work. What is going to work is to stop them from being sexually assaulted in the first place. So that's where our efforts need to go. Now, we are not putting our efforts there because... Oh, we have had lots of uh, declining crime rates in property crime and lots of successes in street crime and alcohol-related violence, etc. But sexual assault has remained absolutely static. It has not declined at all. It's because we're not doing much to, to prevent it, and this has to change. And those safe school programs, you know, the ones that are highly controversial at the moment, they're critical to changing it, but they're the ones that are also quite controversial and that politicians want to get out of the schools. 
Okay. Oh, no. Have I pressed the wrong button? I obviously have. Aha, but I pressed the right button. <laughs> Thank goodness it was a uh, press the right button again. Okay. Um, now, there's, this is, it's critical to understand the reasons for the chronic underreporting because it's those women who do not report and who do not ever disclose because it's such a hidden crime, they are the ones at most risk of re-victimisation. They're also the ones at most risk of lethality or lethal violence. Now, these are the factors. Um, they include shame, embarrassment, stigma. Um, they, they, it is very embarrassing to have to disclose being a victim of a personal crime. So many women do not want to do that. They feel that the stigma is on them. Um, they also very much fear lack of anonymity and very few of them want to report to the police. And in most places and states, that's your first port of call. So they don't want to do that. Um, uh, they also, and I'll tell you a bit about that in a moment, they also um, have a fear of having their children removed. And this is especially the case for perhaps Indigenous women because of once because of the history of the stolen generations, but to maybe other women as well, because if you disclose that you're living in a house of domestic violence, what's, ha what's that? It's a disclosure of child abuse because children who witness domestic violence are, are in, in a serious um, state of, of being abused. So they may end up with their children being um, um, taken from them. So that's another reason. Uh, or of themselves being criminalised. And I can give you an example from research I did with uh, my partner, Russell Hogg, and others. And it's from Western New South Wales, an Indigenous, pretty Indigenous, sort of like an Indigenous town. And this woman turns up to report being victimised. She's got a black eye. She's been beaten. She's sitting in the police station. The police ignore her. She goes up to the counter, asks when she's going to be interviewed. She wanted to make a complaint of domestic violence. She's told to sit down. She gets up. They tell her to sit down again and to be patient. She's waiting. And then in the end, she got up and she said, F you, F you. I'm getting out of here, I'm not waiting anymore. And then they charged her. They charged her with unseemly words. So that's how women can be criminalised. So that it's, it's more important for them to focus on the unseemly words. <laughs> and, uh, and so this is why uh, so many women find going to police stations to report a very hostile experience. Oh, I've done it again. No, I haven't. So that has to change. So how are we going to drive change? Okay, this is what I really want to get to. Police deal with a domestic violence matter uh, every two minutes. In Queensland alone, I know there's 77,000 matters of domestic violence come to the police um, in one year alone. And so there would be many more than that. I think it's over 400,000 across the nation. Now, think about this for a minute. Most victims are women. And who do they report to? Most police officers, sworn officers who can deal with them, are men. So you have a, we have in Australia a complete and utter structural inequity. Um, and of course, uh, that is why most women don't want to go to a, a, a police station to report. And there have been some very famous cases. Uh, did anybody see this wonderful piece in the Saturday newspaper? I mean, I'll put in a plug for the Saturday newspaper. It's a wonderful paper. But they, they did a wonderful uh, story last week on policing violence. And on, on women's... The woman in it is called Mary. It's obviously not a real name. But the multiple times in which she tried to get assistance, and in the end she said she just felt all alone. She just felt all alone. Um, and it was useless, her going to the police for help. And that has to change. 
So, how might it change? Well, I had a wonderful experience last year where I, I um, went to Latin America and I, I, got, I had to get permission from the Minister of Security to visit women-only police stations. And I did that and I got permission. Yeah. Now, I'll explain what they are first. These women-only police stations, um, in Spanish, they're called Comisaria de la Mujer. That means... Uh, but the literal interpretation is really police for women, but United Nations women have misinterpreted it as women-only police stations. And there's a bit of a misunderstanding there because they're not... They can, in fact, have men who work in them. Um, They do tend to be led by women, and all the ones I saw had a female commander. Um, the most important thing is that they're like one-stop shops. They have a lawyer, a social worker, a psychologist, a family worker, financial. So what they do is they provide the inter- complete integrated service to, to the women who are victims on the ground. They don't need to go anywhere. And they're located in what's in Spanish is called the barrios, which is their communities. In Buenos Aires in Argentina, they have they established them in 1988. That's a long time ago now. Um, today, in just the capital city alone, they have 95 uh, police stations for women, um, and they're planning to establish another 40 by 2017. Now, I had the pleasure of seeing some of these. They're like converted houses, um, and they're very bright, and the interview rooms are very welcoming, and they have flowers and paintings. There's always a woman at reception. Uh, they do not look like police stations. They do not feel like police stations. They uh, they do work in hand with the local police, so if they have to make an arrest, they will hand that over to the local police. But one of the other fantastic things is that they have cars, and they have these amazing police cars that have police for women written in, in, in Spanish. Could you imagine if we had hundreds of police cars in Australia that had police for women or police against violence? That in itself would have a major, um, a major impact on, ter- on turning the kind of public consciousness around. So you see how brightly coloured they are. Okay, now the United Nations Women did a big did a, an evaluation of women-only police stations because there's now thousands of them in Latin America, um, and they didn't do an evaluation of the ones in Argentina. I'm hoping to do that next year. Uh, but they did Brazil, Nicaragua, Ecuador, and Peru, and what they found was that they en- en- enhanced women's access to justice there and. Uh, they massively increased their experience of the justice system. They certainly increased conviction rates, um, and that they uh, they certainly enhanced the number of women employed in the police force. Uh, and in fact, <laughs> almost turning it around. Um, and so now you have um, better career structures for women in police. So it's dealing with some very systemic structural issues in policing and policing violence. Some of them dealt with domestic violence and sexual violence. Some of them only dealt with domestic violence. There was, there was a layer of complexity there. And also in remote and rural areas, because Argentina is very similar to Australia, lots of dense populations in the cities, um, they have what's called a roving mobile women's violence against women unit, and it roves all around the countryside, or they have more than one. Um, and, and in it, it's like a one-stop shop, so it has police, lawyers, social workers, and drives and goes to all those inaccessible areas um, to hand out information. But they have a preventative... Um, mandate, and last year they organised a massive march in Buenos Aires at which over 70,000 people attended um, to stop violence against women. So they have a preventative mandate as well. They're amazing. Um, So it's not... um, 
It's therefore not surprising that these have spread all over the world and they're now in Africa, they're in Sierra Leone. Tamil India has taken them up. There's 3,000 women police officers in Tamil India now. So it's, been, it's taken off in, in the world because it's, co it's, cost of, it's really cost-effective, it's really on the front line, and it's really solving that structural issue that women do not want to go to male police and disguise. They do not. It really is solving that problem, what we have. And we have it. So could they work in Australia? Well, this is Comisiara de la Mujer, and that says um, police for women. I think it would really, really help. I really do. It would be preventative, um, and it would be very cost-effective, and it would be something that we could roll out across a country as big as Australia, and we can convert or we can use things like... Um, 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 because they don't have to be police stations, they don't have to have cells, so you can convert um, houses, you can convert units, you can convert churches, you can convert um, community halls. You can, you, there's all sorts of ways you can do it because they don't need to have those steely, grey, awful waiting areas that police stations have because why? They don't want them to be welcoming because they're dealing mostly with offenders, so why should victims have to go to them? Okay. Now, and the rest of my talk, I'm going to switch the tempo a minute here. Wait a minute. Because now I'm going to talk about women who are offenders and women, and women who are violent as well, because uh, they certainly can be. Okay. Why the huge increases in women's imprisonment? And they have been massive, and it's been happening not just in Australia, but it's been happening all over the world. We know that women's imprisonment has increased 60% in the last decade in Australia. Last year, women's imprisonment rose 11%. The national average was 6%. Our women's jails are absolutely overflowing. They are at the brink. In America, women's imprisonment, there was about 14,000 women in prison in the 1980s. Today, there's 200,000. We are absolutely at a brink. The Waco Women's Jail in Brisbane is absolutely chockers. It's overcrowded. There are pregnant women sleeping on yoga mats this big on floors because there's not enough beds. And you know how when a prison is overcrowded because the seats are stuck on the floor, you can't add seats to a table. So women have to take turn eating off the floor. That is how bad it is. Now, we all know that uh, the shit sandwich portfolio is a very common expression in, a, in, in, in politics. Well, corrections is really the shit sandwich portfolio. And it's going to get even shittier because the women's jail at Waco is so full, if they went to the toilet at the same time, it would flow up and out onto the floor. That is how serious the overcrowding problem has become. I'm not so sure about the situation in Sydney, but I'm pretty sure it's, it's pretty... Women's overcrowding in jails is a serious issue everywhere. Now, this really needs to change, and it really needs to change urgently. Now, I just want to give you a bit of a snapshot of what women are in prison for. 18% um, are in prison for drug offences, and nearly all of those drug offences are possession. Victimless crimes, possession. They're petty drug offences. Um, another 33% are in for violent-relating offences, and that has been a very significant change. A few decades ago, it would have been less than 10%. That is a change, and I'll talk about why in a minute. And 8% of them were in for homicide, and homicide 
women nearly always kill... Um, it, it's not always, but it's often either their partners, violent partners, or children in very tragic circumstances. Okay. But we can also see that fraud... Fraud takes up a lot of them. And a lot of that fraud is very petty, minor social security payments being overpaid. Um, very, very minor, usually. Now, and what would surprise many is that half the women in jail... Oh, well, sorry. A third, over a third are Indigenous and a half are on remand. That is, they haven't even been sentenced. And in my view, they should not even be in jail. But we have to look at the growth of women's prison in relation to growth in men's. Males are the blue, this is highly gendered, and females, <laughs> and females are red, all right? Can you see that? Um, and we can see that women's, women's uh, imprisonment rates have been, they have been growing at a rate faster than men's. But you can see here, thanks to all our law and order politicians, of which unfortunately there is um, an abundance of, we end up with um, this massive... Um, we have a complete dysfunction in our, in our criminal justice system at the moment. We have crime rates going down, with the exception of violence against women, but we have prison rates going up. Why? At the cost of $100,000 a year or billions of dollars of taxpayers' money. Why? Because it makes politicians feel good. It doesn't, it doesn't solve the problem. It, it wastes it millions and billions of dollars of taxpayers' money, and that's the outcome you get. Okay, now nearly half the men are in prison for being violent. And you might want to say that a lot of them should be, anyone who's a risk to the community should probably be in there. And they're very different patterns, I'll talk about it in a moment. 27% of prisoners are male. So the overrepresentation of Indigenousness, Indigenous women are more overrepresented in jail than Indigenous men. And that's a point often lost on a lot of people. This is obviously a prison door. It's one from, I better not say where. <laughs> now, why, why have we got so many more women ending up behind hideous doors like this? Women who are committing victimless crimes, and many of them are mothers, most of them age 18 to 35. Uh, many of them have um, mental and drug issues. Over half of them have been victims of, of sexual assault and are experiencing trauma. So... Um, one of the reasons is upcrimming. Now, upcrimming and increased patterns of criminalisation. Upcrimming is a term from, I've borrowed from the United States. Now, I know I'm critical of other people who borrow terms from the United States, but I'm going to do it. Um, it because it is, in fact, it does describe the massive, massive incarceration of women in jail for the most petty, petty behaviours, and they really shouldn't be there in the first place. Um, I just want to take a moment to read from this amazing book, and if you haven't bought one, there's the Piper Kerwin's book, Orange is the New Black. It's her, her life in prison. But she's absolutely spot on, and I just want to quote you here for, for a, a minute what she says about it. Prison is quite literally a ghetto in the most classic sense of the world, a place where the US government now puts not only the dangerous but also the inconvenient... People who are mentally ill, people who are addicts, people who are poor and uneducated and unskilled. Meanwhile, the ghetto in the outside world is a prison as well and a much more difficult one to escape from. In fact, there's basically a revolving door between our urban and rural ghettos and the formal ghetto of our prison. She's so right. 
That is such a powerful and insightful analysis and it matches all the research because most of the women in our jails are extremely marginalised and impoverished and I would say at least half of them, if not two-thirds, should seriously just not be there. So one of the reasons is this upcrimming of very petty, small offences, and, and a lot of it is drug possession and victimless. Some of it is fraud and social security related. Um, and some of it is violence related, and some of that is related also to engagement in drug cultures. We know that one thing that has shifted is that drug cultures used to be a man's world, drug running and drug curing, it's no longer a man's world. And that, I think, is what's drawn a lot more women into the justice system. But there's no doubt about the major reason why they're in jail and in jail for longer for, for incredibly petty crimes is because of our dumb politicians. They are dumb. They, are, they engage in an auction around who can, who can set up the most punitive systems um, so that they can go to the electorate and, and say, we're solving a problem. They're not solving a problem. All they're doing is making themselves, they think they're making themselves look better, but they're not. And things like stricter probation. The other, when I look, when you look at who's in women in jail, half of them on remand, and then you have a look at a whole other bunch of them, they're there for breaches of parole. And you could end up back in jail simply for what's called a dirty urine, that is you've had a drug or you've had, a, had some sort of prohibited or illicit drug. So instead of sending these women to a community-based drug re uh, re rehabilitation centre at at, a, at a, a cost of this much compared to that much, oh, no, 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 we send them back to jail. And you taxpayers pay for that because we want to be tough on crime. So it's all, that is the problem. And unfortunately, that is a huge problem. Strict appropriation, um, putting women back in jail for incredibly petty, petty breaches of probation. I've already just talked about the remand. And this really has to change and it needs to change fast. Before the shit overflows, literally, in wet cold women's jail, because it's about to. Oh, I have this habit of getting ahead of myself, because <laughs> my lecture's always in my head. Okay, well, here is this wonderful book again, <laughs> just in case you didn't see it the first time. Okay, and I want to get mine signed, because I know she's here. <laughs> okay. Now, it's really important to understand that there are big gender differences between women and men in jail, and women's pathways to imprisonment are very different from men's. In, in, they're so, the same in some respects. They tend to come from the same marginal um, areas, but women tend to be sentenced for much shorter periods of time for much less serious offences. Very few pose a serious risk to the community, i.e. there's hardly a reason to really lock them up in the first place. Um, but the problem with all of this, and then over half of them have got these histories of trauma and domestic violence and sexual assault. Um, they have multi-layered, they tend to be very multi-layered complex clients with lots of issues around drug addiction and mental health. And of course they overwhelmingly are poor, homeless, illiterate, and, and, and coming from that ghetto that, um, that um, the revolving door between the ghetto and the prison that uh, uh, Piper Kerman talks about. Um, now, doing prison time is doubly punishing for women because not only are they um, lawbreakers, but they're gender benders. They're gender, and so, and what's what is so problematic about women in prison is that all the programs and the sentencing assume that what 
because you saw that big picture before. They assume what? Most offenders are male. So therefore, what are the programs in prison about? Men, rehabilitating men. I'm not saying this is a bad thing, but the problem is there's just very, very few programs tailored for women and tailored for mothers. And mothers who are in jail find the experience incredibly punishing, um, the separation and the anxiety. And that needs to change. So, uh, Piper Kerman also talks about this and her frustrations during her period of incarceration where there was just nowhere to send them. She ended up becoming, an, you know, doing an electrician. <laughs> so the only kinds of programs they had were like painting, hmm. electrical work, hmm. programs that what you would assume uh, might be much more suitable to, to, to male prisoners. Um, so there are very few programs that are tailored for women's much shorter period of time in, in prison and also to take into account their complex um, needs and particularly their mental health and then maybe they're also their drug issues. Um, there are also in prisons very culturally diverse populations and in Australian prisons we have over a third are Indigenous women and there's a, a vast lack of program specifically to help them. The other major problem for Indigenous women is that they suffer for the tyranny of distance because many of them are, are imprisoned thousands of kilometres from their communities. So their time in jail is really punishing because they're separated from their family and their communities and it's almost impossible for, 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 for them to get visits. And if you've read this book, you'll, you'll, you'll see just how much visits are so important to just keep, keep these women alive until they can actually get out of the jail system. So we have, a cult, we have a system that's not very good at dealing with um, culturally diverse prisoners. Prison costs, this I think is a conservative cost, it costs at least $100,000 a year to keep someone in prison. It costs around $20,000 to put them in, a, in a, an effective rehabilitation clinic or an effective post-release um, uh, uh, community-based uh, program so you could have five women or five men in the community being supervised, no threat to the community, um, or you can have one in prison um, sleeping on a yoga mat in a massively overcrowded prison situation, which is what we have at the moment. So it's a no-brainer to me that this is in not only to the benefit of prisoners, uh, but it's of benefit, enormous benefit to taxpayers as well. We are, we are now at a stage where we are directing billions of dollars from roads, schools, hospitals, the very things that a lot of these women need to, to, to keep them out of jail, we're diverting money from them and we're putting it into jails, building more jails. It is, it is simply dumb, dumb, dumb. And it has to change. Try telling that to a politician. Now, this is... <laughs> this is how I'm going to finish. You might think it's a bit odd by just saying it's all Jermaine Greer's fault. Let's just blame feminism. Now, there is, in fact, a reason. It's not one I agree with, but I'll tell you what it is. It's called the Sisters in Crime Thesis. And when women's rates of in incarceration, imprisonment and violence were starting to, in to increase in the 1970s and 80s, 
a feminist um, came out, or a theorist came, a criminologist came out, whether she's a feminist or not, I won't. But anyway, she came out and said that, um, Frieda Alder came out and said that women, as women's patterns of equalities came to converge with men's, so would their patterns of crime and they'll, they'll start to behave more like men. Therefore, it's not surprising that we will have sisters engaging in crime and we'll have many more women who become prisoners and, 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 and jailed. So, of course, a lot of very conservative Americans and criminologists and policymakers elsewhere got on the bandwagon and then they just interpreted this or misinterpreted this as, let's just blame feminism. It's all feminism's fault. They want equality. And if they want equality, then they're going to turn women into criminals. I don't, I don't follow that logic, but that's the logic that was put. But there's an absolutely fatal flaw in it. I'll tell you why. Now, Jermaine Greer was described by this... Um, I'll let you read it yourself. But she was described as basically being behind in her generation of, you know, loose-knickered loose lady louts. Um, Patsy. Anyone know Patsy from AbFab? Yes. Patsy, too, has been a, called a loose-knickered loose loose lady lout as well. Um, and remember all the pictures of, you know... Sweetie darling. So they're kind of, those women and that generation of feminist mothers were all blamed for sort of producing a generation of much more criminal daughters. Which, but of course there is absolutely no truth in this. And I can tell you why. Because look, women in prison might know a hell of a lot of F words, but one of them is not feminism. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, and before I sit down, do you mind if I tweet? <laughs> I'm a Twitterholic. That's better than being an alcoholic. Oh, attention seekers up the back there, that's good. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Thank you very much for that. Thank you. Carrie, that's... So fascinating. And I gather from what you were saying there, um, you think orange is a new black is really right on. Absolutely spot on. Go buy it, get it, or, get it signed. And why, why is that? What is it about the prison experience that it tells that we don't otherwise well, know? Well, uh, Piper's using her privilege, well, her, her, I mean, her bad luck at, at ending up in jail 10 years after as a very young woman committing a a crime related to drug running. She, um, but 10 years later, she ended up in jail for it. But by the time she ended up in jail, I mean, so she was from a you know, middle-class sort of blonde woman with lots of skills and had all this sort of career behind her, and she ended up in, um, in, uh, in sort of the, the bowels of the prison. What a shock. Uh, but she learned so much about prison, and then she's taken what she's learned and she's written this wonderful biography. But what she's done is most women in this situation, they don't have those skills. They're not empowered, and they don't have the belief in themselves to come and write memoirs as powerful as this. Um, so this is a fantastic book. It's, it's, it's also... It just captures that experience of what it's like to be stripped, to go into prison, lose your identity, lose your contact with the outside world, what you have to do to survive in prison, and then how prison and the routine and the engagement routines, but also the incredible vileness of the hierarchies of power and the brutality and the incredible um, 
Well, I mean, imprisonment itself is meant to be the punishment, but how certain male prison guards that you had in many female prisons, you have male prison guards and female prisoners, and it's that gendered inequality mm. and having the male prison guard oversee them, strip as they have to mm. strip search them and strip as they have to wash and have showers. It's just the most demeaning experiences. And um, so it, it tells those stories and how, you know, these incredibly hideous and hostile forms of power that they're subject to and yet she, she is just rubbing the foot of the cook. She, she got the bu her, her bunk, bunkie was the cook, right? It was, it was actually apparently, you know, if you're ever in prison, try to get a bu your bunkie mate is the cook because you get much better food. <laughs> yeah. So, and she, all she's doing is rubbing her feet and then, of course, you know, th that you're not allowed to touch each other. So the most kind of, like, supportive, you know, gestures are... Mm. are prohibited, and yet they can do the most hideous things. But look, there's just some reasons why. And she happened to, she, she came, later on she described that prison officer, he went and shaved his head, and in the book she describes him as his, as his penis looking for his lost body. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that will stay to... with me. Uh, so, a very funny book too. So, you can see why there's a lot of wittiness in it as well. All right, I'm just going to open it up to questions now. So we've got one microphone here, number one. Number two is over here if you want to start coming down. Hello. Hi. Does this work? Yep. Okay. Um, I've got a question, uh, but it's actually from my colleague here, Denise Beckwith. Um, so the question basically is when violence relating to women is discussed... Uh, why are the intersections of identity, for example, disability, yeah. <laughs> um, and also sexuality, yeah. so like sexual um, orientation, absent? And on top of that question, um, in regard to women with disability, they are often, even when you look at the national framework, um, they're not in there. You know, they're absent, they're silent. Yeah. And the way that they... So, yes, they have similar um, ways that they have to deal with the violence, but there's also other ways that the perpetrator can use the disability against women with disability. Um, and so, yeah, so the question is, mm. you know, the absence of that, and what do we do about that? Mm -hmm. I, you know, we believe that that has to change too. Yeah, great question, and you're absolutely right. It does have to change. Um, you might... Um, I didn't use the word disability, but in the, and I did actually say in the beginning that there is a great diversity and that women, the, the, a lot of the women who are victims have manifold problems and you know, mental issues and drugs and alcohol and all sorts of things. I didn't explicitly say disability, but, because, but you know, it, it, it is... It, it, they are certainly a vulnerable risk group, for sure. And I also did mention that there was um, same-sex... Um, there, there, are, there is, of course, violence in same-sex communities and transgendered, etc. I acknowledge that. I acknowledge all that. And my, but the problem is, and you point out, a, you make a very good point, because our, the preventative frameworks that I've seen don't mention it. They have a kind of a, a, a one... You know, one-box-fits-all mentality. And they, they also very rarely ever... And they also very rarely ever acknowledge Indigenous women um, as well. And the other group that is missed out, and I might point out there, is new migrant women. New migrant women are in 
immensely vulnerable to violence. Might not be very politically correct to point this out, but they, some of them may have come from communities and societies where violence against women was absolutely legal. They may have come from communities where polygamous and selling off your daughter to be married is normal. So there are, they are also a very high-risk, vulnerable group, and I, that's why I, I have written a piece about this where I've actually addressed it in more detail, that we do need to be much more creative in our thinking and our programming and our approaches such that we do cater for the diversity of contexts of domestic violence and sexual violence and then in our approaches to that. So I, I agree yeah. with you. Yeah. And, I, and I think also because of the, you know, it, it can look very different, you know, um, yeah. depending on, uh, yeah, what they can use, the perpetrator can use to actually... Um, mm. use that coercion, use that. Yes, of course. So it's, it can look very differently. And so when you look at the national framework, I yeah. think, in regards to, you know, and we need it in regards to Indigenous women, mm. it's in there. They have a little section now where, you mm. know, very little section. Mm. But again, women with disabilities, migrant women, they're not mentioned yeah. or, or in little, you know, so, yeah. So yeah. thank you. Anyway. No, thank you for the question. Yes, are we ready for number one? Uh, last year I was talking to a, a lawyer who works for the DPP and the ACT, and she was telling me that they've implemented a must-prosecute rule for domestic violence. So if the, the victim later recounts, which often they do, and don't want to go ahead with the initial charge, the DPP will prosecute anyway and mm -hmm. treat the woman as an unreliable witness if necessary. And I was wondering, what are your thoughts on this? And do you think that it would be something that would be worthwhile to implement for sexual assault and sexual violence as well? Okay, that's incredibly fraught. Um, because, you know, the, it's a really fraught response. I'll tell you why, because, you know, what. One of the significant aspects of sexual violence and domestic violence is, in fact, taking power away from women. So if you take the choice away from women as to whether to proceed or not with the prosecution, you're all, you're, that, she might experience that as re-victimising, taking the power away from her. The other... I mean, there's, there's lots of arguments for and against, but the main problem behind all that problem is that we don't focus enough on prevention, and the other main problem behind that is that it, you, by the, the the responses, the post responses take far too long. And so women often will, will um, withdraw their testimony after things have been patched up. So I'll tell you what they do in Latin America. They issue them <laughs> on the spot fine. They deal with it straight away. And then they give them a certain amount of time and then they say, if, we, if you come back and if, if we have another report of you bashing your wife or doing whatever it is in, the, in this certain time frame, we will then take action against you. So you see that, it's a quick, it, it's an immediate reaction, making the perpetrator accountable, not making the woman go to court, okay, but putting the perpetrator under a, uh, or alleged, I hate that word too, putting the, putting the, putting the offender in, 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 a, in, a, in a situation of power with the women's police stations. And that's, what, that's another thing they do that's incredibly effective. Um, so I think we need to shift how we respond to domestic violence, and I think that's just like tinkering with the system is what I think. So did you have any thoughts on what the consequences of having that... Because now it's already in place, so... What's going to happen with that mass prosecute rule? How is that going to oh, I'm sorry, I haven't done any research on it. It wouldn't be anything I'd advocate for. I advocate for prevention. 
Thanks. <clears throat> yes. Hi there. Um, I was just wondering if you could expand a little on that fantastic quote that you um, said at the end about women in prison knowing a lot of F words, but feminism is not one of them. Um, does that mean that the women who are getting incarcerated don't self-identify as feminists and they're coming from communities where that is not a driving force? Yeah. Absolutely. And in fact, uh, the studies of women in prison, they look at them, uh, many of them are very traditional. That, and, if, and that's another great thing about Piper's book. It demystifies this notion about women in prison. They're very ordinary women. And most of them have come from these tragic backgrounds of multiple victimisations, multiple problems. Um, um, and they're not the kind of women who've really have been... They not, have not been empowered by feminism. They wouldn't have counted it. They've come from very marginalised communities. Um, there is, in fact, one more slide, which I forgot to show. <laughs> oh. oh, no, I can't. I forgot to show it. There is, there is in fact... Oh. Do you want to see it or not? No, one more after that. I'll show you it. Oh, no, hang on. Wrong way. Wrong way. Okay. So, in the really big picture of things, the problem isn't feminism. And the, the, pro and the solution here is that I forgot to say that if men behave more like women, it's not the other way around. If women behave more like men, they're going to become more criminal. It's if men behave more like women, you know, our prisons and our courts will be idle. But the thing about this is that um, um, I also need to put in the big picture of things is that most men, men can be part of the solution, in fact have to be, and they should be part of the solution much more than they are. We do have white ribbons groups. We do have he for she campaigns. And men who um, are models... Um, and who aren't stand by, aren't, aren't, don't stand by, uh, and men who challenge those forms of masculinity and gender advance, that's really, really important. So feminism is, in fact, really good for men, even if many of them don't know it. But most, if you look at the other big picture, most of men's victims are other men. So about 60% of all murders are men killing each other, and many of the assaults are men hitting up on each other. So if men behave more like women, oh, there'd be a lot less dead men around as well. <laughs> you get it? Yeah, hi. Hi, I find the statistic that lower, um, lower economic women take 30 goes before they leave and the, the more educated, more able women, three. I'm lucky I'm in the, the, the three times, in fact, the first time was it. The concern that I've got is that statistic, and mm. I agree with you with prevention, and I think women police would be awesome. And I stand there going, thank God I had a female um, lady come and speak to me at the time mm. because I'm not Indigenous and mm. I'm not at mm. risk. And I still felt that someone would take my child. Yeah, yes, right? And yes. so even speaking, yes. was, someone might take my child yes. because I didn't understand the, poli the, the police system. Yes. The police, this was the first time I've ever spoken to a police person. Um, and so that's a concern in itself as well. My question to you in yeah. that context is what can we do for all women to let them know, one, what violence is, mm. because I was clear that what I'd experienced wasn't mm. until I was educated. Mm. 
what can we do to help them so that it is the first time, but even before the first time, they yeah. actually stop the behaviour that's actually going on? Because what I'm finding now that I'm talking about it with others, is that domestic violence is a bit of a creep. It creeps into your life because you allow certain boundaries, certain behaviours to be okay due to other mm. issues and other things and we concede for a bigger picture of an ideal family or an ideal future that we're looking for. In your experience, what are the things that we can do to empower a woman that's suffering this in silence to break free earlier or to prevent it in the first place? Fantastic question. Thank you very much. And, and thank you for sharing your, your story and your journey with us. I think that's Part of the part of the solution is about women exactly like yourself being brave enough to uh, to, to tell those stories, um, and of course the key to and I do think that having if women knew that they would have a woman when they phoned up the police, I do think that would really make a massive difference to to the um, willingness to report and to seek access to justice. And that's a, that's one thing. But the other point that you, you work, and you were very lucky you had a woman, and there's been some very famous cases where, anyway, I won't go into them now, but where they've had male police, sent them away, then they've got a female police officer, and then, then action's been taken. Um, but what you really are pointing out to is how do we break that the cycle um, and, and part of that is about educating children. It, it's, it's a really we need, really need a holistic preventative framework. The United Nations has developed one, so you don't need to, to um, uh, reinvent the wheel here. And the reason why the United Nations has developed what's called a best practice framework for prevention, which includes education, partnering, all sorts of things, and starting with children, starting very young, and starting with uh, respectful relations and non-violent relations in schools. That's where you've got to start. Um, but also into the community and pubs and other uh, areas and where men congregate sports fields. So the, the, a, a prevention campaign has to be holistic. Uh, it has to really uh, partner with men because I think men are really going to have the biggest influence on other men because they already do, as we know, but in the adverse way. So it's how you turn that around. Um, so, look, it's a big issue uh, and, and uh, it's certainly one that needs to be um, given much more attention and much more focus because at the moment we are simply focusing on, on post-intervention measures. And they're... As a, as, a, as a woman myself who has protected myself and my, at the time, three-and-a-half-year-old, who's now almost five, mm. is that I'm teaching her what is OK and yes. what is not OK as a sense of behaviour and teaching of the other children around her as well. Yeah. And if we as all of, as women of today mm. can teach the next generations, maybe we can stop that. But I, I reckon police, women police here in Australia would be absolutely bloody awesome. Yeah. <laughs> well, yes, we only have 10%, so, you know, we could do a lot more. Yeah, right. Um, now I think we just have time for just for one more question because we're almost out of time, so yes. 
Hi, Kerry. Um, my question to you is basically just in regards to proportionality. So in, in my experience working with domestic violence victims um, and basically seeing the sentencings that are imposed on the offenders, there seems to be some kind of inadequate proportionality in response to the crime that's actually being committed, so domestic violence, and then basically what is actually being carried out. So you might see an 11-month sentence laid down um, for something that's genuinely going to affect someone for the rest of their life. So what would you say would be a proportionate punishment for domestic violence? Okay, I think holding perpetrators accountable for their behaviour is, is important, but it's certainly, I'm not a judge, I'm not a magistrate, it's not an area of my expertise, and I think there has been a lot of focus on that, and it's very controversial, um, and, but, I, but I, you know, so I can't offer you an answer to that question, but what I can say is that I think there's far too much emphasis on, on on those much smaller questions, even though they're important. Um, as I said, my focus is much more around prevention, education for reform, driving social and cultural change. And look, sentencing is one way of doing it, but it's only, it's only, it's only one way. And look, I, I haven't studied proportionality of sentencing, so I, I really can't give you um, an answer that you're looking for, I'm sorry. Thank you. Of How rare are those kinds of answers? I haven't done a research paper on that, so I won't speak. <laughs> Well, it's true, I haven't. No, it's, it's, it's great. Uh, you know what? If we're super fast, we can get one quick question, one quick answer in. Yeah, okay. Thank you very much. And thank you for what you've brought to myself and, and to us. Just a quick question. When did you know that... Did you have an aha moment about that this would be your life's work or what you're doing, or did it come to you over a period of time? What was it? I came from a violent family, um, the most dysfunctional family. And I just knew I didn't want any of my children to go through that. And I just knew that there was, um, you know, if I was going to make a change to the world, I had to do something. So turn my anger about the worst childhood I had into something better. <laughs> That's kind of where the drive and passion comes from, that, you know, um, I was supposed to be a checkout chick. That was my future. Um, and I wasn't supposed to go to um, um, university. Um, because, you know, anyway, because I was, came from one of those completely dysfunctional families. So I just see myself as privileged, a bit like, you know, um, and because I, I got out of that and got out of that dysfunction, went to university and I just made it my lifelong passion to try and make the world a better place and a safer place for all women. So that's basically it. Kerry, can, can I just thank you, you know, on behalf of a, a lot of us here in this room? I mean, there is just so much commentary that is fueled by air or vitriol or just some vague belief or some instinct which cannot be pinned down. You've been working on this for decades, and I know it's exacting, ex exhaustive, careful work. And to be able to bring that to such an important area is, is crucial. So we... Thank you very much well, for the contribution much. that you make. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.